We're continuing this morning in Mark's Gospel in chapter 13. It's on page 719 in the Blue Pew Bibles. The series of disputes between Jesus and the religious leaders that we've seen the last few weeks are concluded. And this chapter is the longest teaching block in Mark's Gospel. It's just Jesus, as far as we know, and these four disciples who begin to talk to him about this question of the future. Chapter 13 is a particularly difficult one, both in terms of the content of it and also the structure and arrangement of what Mark is doing here. Matthew and Luke have discourses that are similar, uh, but we also find some of these teachings that we find in Mark 13 in other places as well, in Matthew and in Luke. So there's some evidence that Mark is compiling uh, a number of sayings of Jesus here based upon the common theme. And the theme of Mark 13 is about the future. The chapter, of course, is notoriously difficult at another level because it's about the future, because it has this prophetic sense to it and contains elements of prophecy which are always a bit tricky to interpret. So let's ask the Lord to help us as we look together at his word. Please pray with me. Father, as we have prayed this morning, uh, we pray again asking for your spirit to illumine our hearts, for you to give us insight into your word. And we pray that you would help us to hear and be changed as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. So here now, the word of God preserved for us, for our instruction from Mark 13. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? And Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to... The local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. 
But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. Our passage begins with Jesus leaving the temple area. There's something symbolic about this, perhaps. He doesn't return again to the temple area, as far as we know. On the way out, one of his disciples points out the amazing splendor and the glory of the temple. According to the ancient writers, this temple was remarkable. It was on par with the the wonders of the ancient world. It was really an amazing building. Just a few decades ago, one of the large foundation stones was discovered. It's, you know, part of the Temple Mount is still remaining, uh, but one of these foundation stones that would have been a part of this temple was, was discovered. It was 42 feet long, 14 feet wide, and 11 feet high, weighing something like 600 tons, right? In the Temple Colonnade area... At this, at this time in Jesus' day, there were 162 columns. Each was 40 feet high. They were so large in diameter that it took three men standing together to, to link arms to reach all the way around one of these columns. The temple proper itself was over 150 feet high. It was decorated with gold plates that reflected the sun with a kind of glory that, that you know, these writers remark about. Uh, There was a proverb of the rabbis that said, He who has not seen the temple of Herod has not seen a beautiful building in his life. Even Even if some of these historical accounts are a bit exaggerated, we can hardly really comprehend how majestic and amazing this temple was. And the disciples again pointed out, and Jesus doesn't join in the praise of the temple. Rather, he tells the disciples this astonishing fact that the temple will be destroyed. That these massive stones will not stand upon each other any longer. And as you probably know, at the end of the Jewish revolt that began in 66 AD, the Roman army sieged Jerusalem for five months, finally breaking in in 70 AD and destroying the temple and raising much of the city. Jesus is saying that there's a different kind of glory, that there's a much more lasting kind of glory to be found in him and to be found in the new covenant that God is making with his people. This pronouncement here that the temple will be destroyed by Jesus is the culmination of all of Jesus' remarks about the physical temple that we've seen over the last uh, few months, that, that this temple as a corrupted institution as it existed in the first century was passing away. And in the parable of the fig tree, in the parable of the tenants, in these other sayings of Jesus, we've heard again and again this idea that God is doing something new, that he's doing something better in his son, that the temple wasn't ultimate, but that the temple was, uh, the time of it was passing away. The God with us place was pointing to the God with us person, and now, of course, on this side of Pentecost, the God with us spirit is living inside of everyone who believes. So the temple becomes unnecessary. The scene shifts to the other side of the valley across from the temple in uh, verses 3 and 4. 
As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? These questions are from these four disciples. Incidentally, these are the four that Jesus called first uh, in the order in which they followed him. And these questions set up the rest of the chapter. And how we sort out these questions really help us to interpret the text. There are two distinct questions here. First, when will the destruction of the temple happen? Jesus has just said that the temple will be destroyed. So they say, when will this happen? That's one question. The second question is, what will be the sign that these things are about to be fulfilled? And I think that the chapter is weaving together the answer to both of these questions. As much as Jesus gives an answer, it's sort of a prophetic kind of answer that doesn't really speak in concrete terms or speak very plainly, but speaking prophetically in answer to those two questions. And so there, there's this weaving back and forth of those issues through this chapter. The disciples are connecting the two. And in history, they actually turn out to be not connected. Right? When they hear Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple, they assume that this will usher in the kingdom of God in all its fullness. The Messiah on the throne, the removal of the Romans, the final judgment, and everything else. As Jewish people, they can't, they can't imagine life without the temple. And so if it will be destroyed, then they assume that this will trigger this great reversal, that, that, that the final defeat of the Romans and all of the enemies of God's people will happen very soon. But as I mentioned, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. The destruction of the temple is not connected to the second coming of Jesus. And that's part of the way that this passage is working, is there's this playing back and forth of what's future and what's further in the future, that in terms of prophecy, we don't always get point by point lined out, which is which. When we read the chapter, I think we should understand, again, that Jesus is answering both questions and that he's speaking prophetically about the destruction of the temple and about the second coming. And commentators disagree exactly how to sort all of this out, but I think generally the section that I read through verse 23 is mostly about the events of AD 70 and that the later section, next week's sermon, starting in verse 24, is mostly about events that are yet future to us and the return of Jesus. Now, that's not airtight. There's this going back and forth, but I think generally speaking, that's the flow of the passage. When we try to summarize the answers that Jesus gives to those two questions, the when question and the sign question, I think we see that the when question is answered partly by his statements that say, not yet which isn't what we expect, right? We expect him to say, then this will happen and then this. And no, Jesus answered, well, that's, these things will happen, but that's just the beginning of the birth pains. You know, these things will happen, but that is not yet. And so if someone comes and says he's the Messiah, then you don't believe him because it's not yet, right? We're looking for the yet. Jesus keeps saying it's not yet. That's one of the things that's difficult about the when question The sign question, the disciples seem to be asking for a single sign. They want to know what's the thing that's going to happen first. And Jesus doesn't give them a sign. He talks about lots of different signs. He talks about wars. He talks about conflicts. He talks about earthquakes and famines. But again, these things are just the beginning. 
So Jesus is sort of answering the disciples' questions, but sort of not answering them. We'll look at it a bit more closely as we go, but the real focus of the passage, I'm going to say this, this, this has to be clear to us. The real focus of the passage is not about times and dates and signs. The focus of the passage is about present discipleship. The chapter is full of practical commands. There are imperatives. This is what will happen. This is what you need to do that are for the disciples and for us about how to live in uncertain days, how to maintain faith in difficult times. And so as such, our focus this morning needs to be about following Jesus through the challenges of our faith and challenges to our faith and not trying to think about what might happen when, which is an impossible and mostly, I think, fruitless kind of task. The first danger that Jesus mentions is the danger of being led astray by false teachers, and this is in verse 5. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I'm he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of the birth pains. This is an internal threat. Within the community, false teachers will arise. They'll make false claims. They'll try to get people to follow them rather than, than encouraging the people to follow Jesus. This is a danger that New Testament writers speak about in a number of places. Perhaps we think of, you know, when, this, you know, when we read this, we think of cult leaders that, that you know, make crazy claims and try to control their followers, and, and, and that's one example. But I think there are ways that we can be led astray in more subtle ways by teachers who focus on all kinds of things other than the gospel. You know, Jesus is saying, these people are trying to take my place. And they want you to follow them rather than following me. And so that can happen in extreme cases, but it can also happen in a lot of other ways, can't it? When we take our focus off of Jesus. In the first and second centuries, there are a number of historical examples of Jewish leaders after Jesus who do this very thing who come on the scene, proclaim themselves as the Messiah. During the Bar Kokhba rebellion in the 130s, AD, 132, 135, there was this kind of messianic claim. And mostly they were Jewish people who followed them, but still this relationship with, between Judaism and Christianity isn't completely broken. It's, it's, you know, we're still tied together in terms of the use of their scriptures and all these kind of things. So, so you wonder how much Christians might have been caught up and some of these messianic movements or these claims. And they needed to heed these warnings of Jesus. Again, we think of extreme cases, kind of. But what Jesus is saying here is that these people will be really convincing, won't they? He says it again in verse 21. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles. To deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. 
Right? Jesus is, this is a strong warning. False messiahs may be able to do miraculous kinds of things. To even be able to deceive God's chosen people if that were possible. So Jesus' words should make us take seriously the danger of false leaders who seem to be righteous, who seem to be legitimate, but are really wolves in sheep's clothing and really ones taking us away from Jesus. It's one danger. The next danger that Jesus highlights is the danger that believers will abandon their faith in him because of persecution. Verse 9. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at that time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. As opposed to an internal threat, this is an external threat. From those outside the faith, non-believers will persecute the church. And the passage describes things that happen in the book of Acts. We can read about these kinds of exact things, that persecutions that come up with Paul and the early Christians. We can re- read about those kinds of things that happened in the early church. The disciples were persecuted in the synagogues. The disciples were beaten and, and called to testify before political leaders. According to church tradition, all of the disciples of Jesus, with the possible exception of John, were killed for their faith. Jesus is speaking this about events before AD 70, but not limited to them, of course. Continuing on. So, it doesn't, you know, he's not implying that persecution ends when the temple is destroyed, of course. In the church under the Roman Empire, persecution was an official reality to a greater and lesser degree, at least until the Edict of Milan in three. 13 AD, in which said that the property that was <laughs> the property that was legitimately stolen from the Christians and their churches and everything that they had up to that point, in the Edict of Milan it said that you have to give it back to them, basically. You have to give the Christians back all of their stuff that you stole from them because you were persecuting them. And it also extended religious liberty, not just to Christians, but to all religions in the Roman Empire. Before that, depending on who the emperor was and depending on where you lived, there was persecution for being a Christian uh, to greater and lesser degrees. Interestingly and importantly, in these centuries, history doesn't record any examples of Christians fighting back, of Christians raising the sword against their oppressors. Of course, once political power gets tied with the church, things are different after Constantine that's another story. Moving to modern times, uh, people have estimated that there were more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries of church history combined. It's hard to know if that statement is true. I've heard it many times, but we do know persecution is a present reality for the church in different forms all over the globe today and always has been and it seems to be, Jesus is saying, always will be. Perhaps some of you have read recently, there were five Christians killed in Aleppo, in Syria, just in the past few weeks that made the news. 
Jesus' words here are really terrifying, aren't they? He says that his message will divide families. That those closest to you will betray you to death. Can you imagine it? Jesus says that everyone will hate you because of him. And certainly there's one sense in which this is prophecy. But we have to account for the fact in our own lives that the reality of following Jesus above everything else will cost us something. It will cost us something in this life. There's no way to be Jesus' disciple without counting the cost and without an expectation that we will bear suffering, that we will bear persecution, that injustice will happen to us because we're Christians. For many decades, perhaps centuries in America, right, in our history, to call oneself a Christian and to be at least identified with the church was seen as culturally advantageous in many, if not most, parts of the country, right? If you're a small-town banker, you have to be an upstanding church member or else no one will come to your bank. Now, that doesn't mean that you're actually a Christian or that you're any less greedy than anyone else, right? But this is part of our cultural heritage, This is part of our cultural climate, this idea that upstanding people went to church. Now, this actually has been completely reversed over the last few decades, right? Now, if you go to church, you're kind of weird. I mean, we know it, right? We're weird. It's strange. And and in many ways, there's something lamentable there, and there's something that's not lamentable there. I think it can greatly weaken the authentic witness of the church and the cause of Christ, if anyone claims or pretends to be a Christian. I think the cultural climate that's presently with us is closer to reality, and the reality that the church has usually faced. Right? We are a minority. Jesus said that we would be so. Right? There are two paths. There's a wide path, and there's a narrow path. We shouldn't expect people around us to be impressed if we go to church. We can expect to be misunderstood by our culture. And we are called and we are empowered by the Spirit to bear up under injustice and to love people who wrong us for the sake of Christ. When it comes to our country, you know, of course we believe it certainly would be good for people and for the society to live under the principles of God's laws. We've all benefited from something of a cultural consensus about the codification of quite a bit of Judeo-Christian morality and, and legal stuff, right, in American history. But perhaps that's not what we should expect moving forward. Right? We shouldn't expect the rest of the world around us to think that they should live under the rules of a minority. You know, if they don't share any of our cultural consensus... We live in a democracy, right? The majority kind of rules. So any more than we would want a minority to impose their laws upon us, I think we're reaching that point as a culture where the majority says, this whole Christian foundations to our nation, if that ever existed, or the Christian principles in our law, or, you know, all of this kind of Christian stuff is passé, In the middle of this section in verse 10, 
Jesus gives us this really interesting verse about the spread and expansion of the witness of the gospel in the midst of these strong statements about persecution. He says it in verse 10. The parallel verse in Matthew 24, 14 is an even stronger statement. It says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony, that is a witness, a martyr, a martyrion, to all nations, and then the end will come. This seems to imply that the worldwide preaching of the gospel is something of a prerequisite for the second coming of Jesus. Doesn't that seem to imply that? If you look at the percentage of the world's population who are Christians, you would see that it's probably never been as big as it is right now. In the first century, Christians were dropping the bucket. But the modern missionary movement that happened in the 19th and 20th centuries, the message went out to people all over the globe, in the jungles and the islands, in the Arctic lands. It's increasingly difficult to find places where there is no gospel witness, where there's no church. Certainly there are some places where the church is hidden, where it's very tiny. Europe has become perhaps the darkest continent, which is shocking. Missionaries are needed to strengthen the church. The task isn't finished, of course. The task won't be finished until Jesus returns. But my point is that if indeed Jesus is saying that the spread of the gospel must happen before he returns, then I'm of the opinion that this pretty much seems like it's happened. Now, that doesn't mean he's returning anytime soon. I didn't say that. But it does seem to mean to me that this prophecy may be closer to fulfillment now than it ever was in the previous 2,000 years. I sort of hesitate to say something like that, but if this verse is saying that the gospel must be preached over the whole globe, and we've kind of seen that, that the gospel has gone out, and that the Bible has been translated into thousands of languages, and there are churches almost anywhere around the world. It's amazing, isn't it? from this small group all over the globe. To wrap up the point here, the decline of Christianity in America, in, in many ways, it's, I don't know if it's a decline, it's a shifting at least, it's a change, at least demographically, and it's a change in terms of the church's power and influence in our culture. But that has coincided, not cause and effect relationship just coincided with the spread of the gospel and the rooting of the church in fresh soil all around the globe especially in places like china it's estimated that there are more believers in china than any other country in the world think about that in terms of the number of believers given where we live jesus words are important for us today there may be there will be increasing pressure on christians to abandon their faith and to fall away from Christ. Increasing cultural pressure on us to do that. Jesus gives us a final section here. I think the last section of the passage is mostly applying to those living uh, in the generation who lived through the events of 70 AD, starting in verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong... Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. 
Pray that this will not happen in winter. Because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. This abomination that causes desolation, of course, uh, is hard to understand what that actually means. It harkens back to Daniel, perhaps. There was also something that happened in the, in the intertestamental period with the Maccabees. Um, I think this actually is the only real sign in the passage. Jesus says, when this happens, then you should flee from Judea and from Jerusalem, and you should head for the mountains, because this is a horrible event. Perhaps, again, we've got prophetic hyperbole here, but Jesus describes unparalleled days of distress, never to be equaled in the history of the world. And as these events unfolded in 70 AD, that's exactly how the church understood it. They understood Jesus' words that when the Roman armies come, we need to run away. It's hard to know exactly what this abomination is. It seems like it is something that happened then in AD 70 in the fall of Jerusalem. And we don't have time to go through all of this passage, but I think it's important to notice through the whole thing, actually, that God promises to be present with his people even in the midst of those terrible events. Right? That he's speaking through them in the spirit. That he's cutting short those days in his mercy. He's not standing aloof, but he's present when terrible evil occurs. And the cross, of course, is the ultimate proof of that. That God has taken suffering upon himself. That he doesn't stand apart from his creation, but that he's entered into it. What are we to make of all of this today? In ways we feel far removed from those days, but these are words that are important for us today. I heard Ravi Zacharias preach uh, a few years ago, and he spoke so passionately about the need for Christians in our generation to be discerning, to be wise in these challenging times. We face pressure from all sides. We face pressure to retreat. We face pressure to compromise. We face pressure to fight back in ways that betray our own sinfulness and ways that betray our desire to regain influence and power. And I think that may be as great of temptation as any of them. We face pressure to throw up our hands and lose faith in the promises of God. We face pressure to become cynical and loveless. And Jesus gives us this passage to consider how to respond in these challenging times. What does the real danger of being led astray look like for you today? We can be tempted to place our hope in heroes or leaders. We have to be really careful, as I've said, that these people are drawing us closer to Jesus, not just closer to that leader or closer to their cause or closer to their way of seeing things or their beliefs. Jesus speaks particularly of being led astray by people, but I think the principle is that very much we have to be on our guard to, be not, to not be led astray by anything that would remove us from a single-minded focus on Christ and the gospel message. As Christians, we can debate and argue about all kinds of things, and some of that, of course, is necessary. But in really challenging times, at the end of the day, we have to remain single-minded about what's important. 
we have to be able to distinguish things of central importance from lesser things in our witness to the world. If we only have a few things that the world will hear from us, what will those things, what will we say to them? Will we talk to them about issues? Will we talk to them about belief and about the love of God and about the cross and about redemption? The kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. Jesus will be returning. Eternity is more real right, than we can imagine. Secondly, what does the very real danger of falling away look like for us today? There's a danger of being led astray. There's a danger of falling away. We believe that God will preserve all who truly believe in him. No one can snatch us from Jesus' hands. We are safe, ultimately. We can have that kind of assurance. And yet, we must recognize that part of the way that God preserves our faith is that we listen to these kinds of warnings. Part of the way that God uses his word in our lives is that it warns us not to go down a path that would lead to us falling away. We can't presume that we can live however we want to and ultimately just live the way we want to and think that that's God's best for us. Don't think that a slow fade into spiritual mediocrity is a ticket to heaven. In many places, the Bible calls us to examine ourselves in order to grow, in order to remain focused on the gospel, in order not to be caught up in other things around us. It's a, this is a heavy passage, isn't it? It's something for us really, I think, to consider. I'll close the story. A few months ago, uh, I was awakened sometime during the night by what sounded like an airplane flying over. Now, of course, we're in the traffic pattern for BWI, so we hear airplanes fly over all the time, and it's not a big deal. But this was something unusual. It was, um, it was louder. I mean, it woke me up, I think. Maybe I was just kind of half awake, half asleep, right? And it kept going. And it kept getting louder, almost to the point where I felt like the house was going to shake. Now, a thought popped into my head in that moment. What if this is the sound of Jesus coming back? Now, now I'm half asleep, right? And I wanted to get up, and I wanted to go to the window. I wanted to see if, like, I'm like, like, seriously, I'm listening for trumpets. But instead, I felt paralyzed with fear. Instead of, like, sort of leaping up with excitement and joy, is Jesus coming back right now? I was basically, like, in that, in that place in, where you feel like you can't move because I was afraid. And eventually the noise stopped and I went back to sleep. But when I remembered this in the morning, I was talking to Aaron about it, and, and I was like, if I really thought that Jesus was coming back, why couldn't I get up and go to the window? What was, I, was I afraid? What was I afraid of? What else is going on in my heart? Was I afraid of what I might miss in this life if Jesus interrupted it? Was I afraid that I wasn't ready, that I wasn't prepared for him to come back? 
And I know that this passage is mostly about the events of 70 AD, but it's also about the danger of being led astray and falling away. Am I being led astray in this life by its comfort and its goals to the point that I want to put Jesus on hold? Am I in danger of losing my hope in the great return of Christ and the eternal glory offered based on what this world has to offer me? What about you? How does this passage really get to the things in our hearts about what we really want and how easy it is for us to follow what other people are doing, how easy it is for us to shrink back from what Jesus challenges us to do and who he challenges us to be in these difficult and trying times. The church has lived through worse, right? I don't, want to, I don't want to end with this note of super pessimism, right? The world is falling apart. I don't believe that. I believe we have to actually fight against that because that betrays no hope. That Jesus has great promises for us and he has promises for our future and we're safe in his hands. And we're called to be wise. And we're called to focus on the gospel and it's, it's a wonderful thing that he offers to us. And we're called to look forward to him coming back, isn't it? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. Jesus, we thank you that you taught us these things. That they're preserved for us. And we pray that you would sustain and guide your people. We pray that you would be the one who preserves us, that you would be the one who preserves our hope and our faith, that you would be the one who helps us to fight against cynicism and pessimism and, and unbelief. We pray that you would be the one who keeps us from being led astray, who keeps us from going unto lesser things, who keeps us from being too comfortable in this world. We thank you that this, this your word is here for us and that it's good. We pray that you would work it into our hearts this day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.